how, how do you want to do this? Do you just want to like interview me or do you want me to just start putting stuff out there that I know about and we'll just go off of that? Or- uh, yeah, Kelly, if you have some questions, we'll jump in and just ask you or I'll talk about a little bit how we got on this in the first place. Then you can interject as you. OK, uh, whatever. Uh, so, yeah. OK. As far back as educated men have recorded their history. Veils have been lowered to disclose a vast new reality, rents in the fabric of man's awareness. And somewhere in the endless search of the curious mind lies the next vision, the next key to his infinite capacity. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble, fillet of finny snake and cauldron boil and bake, eye of newt and toe of frog, wool of bat and tongue of dog, adler's fork and blindworm sting, lizard's leg and howlet's wing, for a charm of powerful trouble, like a hell broth boil and bubble, double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble, cool it with a baboon's blood, then its charm is firm and good. And so say the three witches boiling a potion in Shakespeare's Macbeth. Welcome back to Project Archivist, everybody. Lobo is off this week, as we have talked about a few times. He's taking care of family obligations, enjoying summer, and just doing a bunch of housework. But he will be back next week. And being that it's July, well, I'll save it. You'll see next week when next week hits. This week is going to be a little bit different than most shows. Yes, I know I say that all the time. But this week, we have returning guest Aaron David. Where is A.A. Ron right now? Actually, how this worked out is then when Aaron was on the show last time, we had brought up a little bit about the back history of which and brewing. So we got to talking and we've always wanted to do a show about brewing. Well, I talk about brewing on here all the time, so I was a little reluctant to do that. I figured people might be tired of, if you're following me on Facebook, you see me post pictures of stuff that I'm brewing all the time. Uh, People that listen to the show that know me, I've helped a lot of them out with their brewing stuff, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, I don't don't really know if I want to do this. So I posted it up and I got a lot of response saying, yeah, let's let's see this. You know, we want to hear about this. So me and Aaron got together and we are going to be sharing this episode on both of our feeds. So if you listen to Charm the Water and you've already heard that episode, you're pretty much going to hear the same thing here, except for maybe with a little bit better of editing. But anyways, um, in this show, as is always the case with any kind of interview with me, we go all over the map. We discuss the history of brewing, some of the goddesses and gods of brewing, what mead is, how to make mead, how to make beer, different regions and different parts of the world, different brews, how brews were made a long time ago and we just kind of go all over the place and also as is normal when me and Aaron get together we do kind of talk over each other a little bit though I did try to watch myself this time because as Lobo pointed out in the last episode that I did with Aaron me and him have a habit of I have a habit of cutting him off and sometimes vice versa so I tried to hold back a little bit in this show and as always I am incredibly nervous during interviews so cut me some slack Anyways, yeah, that's pretty much it. If you're interested in the history of brewing, if you want to make beer, if you want to make wine, if you want to make mead, we talk about all of it in here, including the history of witchcraft being involved with brewing. Uh, We touch a little bit on Aleister Crowley and his strange history in regards to beer brewing and just all kinds of little off the wall facts and trinkets and different things. So hopefully you guys enjoy it and I'll see you at the other side. What makes you think she's a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt. A newt? I got better. 
Okay, so, so <laughs> uh, this is this is odd because me and you are both going to be sharing this show on our own respective podcasts, mm-hmm. and um, this came. I, well, I think it came about because last time you were on my show, we briefly brought up the whole thing about a lot of the folklore with witches having to do with the fact that women used to brew beer. Yeah, we we'd been talking about the uh, Black Cat gambling book and uh, the Black Cat. And the witch uh, with her hat and the witch with her broom. Yeah. And kind of, uh, yeah. So I guess, well, well, I guess we'll start there. And uh, I guess we'll just do this however it goes. But we'll start with, you want me to start with talking about meat or do you want me to start to talk about beer? Because there's a lot of, there's a lot of crazy history around all of this stuff. So. Yeah, we were talking about how kind of, uh, it's a, sort of to me, a magical, mythical kind of origin for uh, beer. It is. Uh, <laughs> Actually, all of it is. And you constantly are brewing your own brews and uh, doing all kinds of different. So first of all, let me hear what you actually do. Uh, first, Kelly, are you are you there? Yeah, I'm here. We're joined also with Kelly. So if you have any questions for Roe or whatever, just jump right in. For sure. Uh, because when the two of us get going, it's hard to interject. Yeah. Yeah. I got a so, last time I interviewed you, uh, Lobo was listening to the show and he kept sending me messages like, stop cutting them off. Let them talk. But when me and you get going, we just kind of run over one another because a lot of times when we talk about this, our paths follow on the same line. And there's kind of this rush to get the information out from one another mm-hmm. when we record together. So I well, may do that here. <laughs> my dream like business would be a brewery. Um, kind of in, in instilling like herbs and stuff in it, which are, I think some breweries are beginning to do. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you're, you're the guy, like the go-to guy. Uh, I'm getting some advice from you on a, how to set up a still, what, what to get. You've sent me some links to some pretty cool kits. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I love to see this stuff you post with your own brews and uh, all that. But as of now, I know pretty much nothing and walking in as a newbie. So uh well, Let's start out like I'm an idiot. Uh, first off, none of this is very hard to do. So how I got started into this stuff is about 26 years ago. Um, I had a paintball buddy of mine. I used to be really heavily into paintball. And uh, he was getting into brewing and stuff. And uh, we got into a conversation. Six years ago, were you guys legal? <laughs> yeah, it was, still, it was legal back then. It's 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 been legal. You can always brew your own stuff. Um mm-hmm. Depending on what state that it's in, it's illegal to distill and it's it's not depending on what state you're in so forth. Like some places like uh, you can't distill and sell alcohol. Other places are you allowed you're allowed to distill it for your own personal consumption in Mm -hmm. Michigan, where I live. Pretty much anything is fair game for your own personal use. You're allowed to brew beer. Wow. You're allowed to make wine. Um, distilling is kind of a gray area. Um, distilling, that's like liquor, right? You're yeah. getting hard liquor. We're going to get into that, though, because it goes into the whole, um, there's the whole idea of what spirits, the name spirits came from. There's lots of different variations on that story. But uh, distilling um, that that's kind of a gray area depending on what state you live in. Like in Michigan, no one's really sure if it's legal to distill alcohol or not. So a lot of places that sell this kind of stuff to sell it as water distillery because you distill water the same way you distill alcohol. You just distill alcohol at a much lower temperature than you do with water. But we'll get into that. Did, were you 
live now? Did you grow up there? Yeah, I've lived in this area my entire life. Uh, within, do, you, do you know? Do you know of like a history of moonshiners? Not really around Michigan. Michigan doesn't have a real rich moonshining history. A mm-hmm. lot of that stuff Which, is down south. Yeah, here so, in the Appalachians, that is the like thing that uh, everybody has a relative that did that for yeah, a living. That, that's also where uh, like NASCAR came from. It evolved from the bootleggers who used to distill stuff, and they would transport it. So they would have these cars that were outfitted. They were made for speed, and they were made to outrun the police officers yeah, that were trying my, to catch them. My dad loved NASCAR for that reason, I believe, but I never yeah. could quite get the uh, the love of it. <laughs> <laughs> circle I've never been a around. never yeah I've, I've never really appre- I, I like rally racing and mm-hmm. different stuff like this sit I don't know I don't get it to watch cars go around in a left-hand turn for hours on end and stuff I, I respect it but I don't get it so yeah it, it's I guess it's very nuanced and it, it is very yeah. cool to have that historicity in the uh I guess sport yeah from where it came from my so, dad was a race car driver so I I kind of see it a little bit differently it was something that I grew up with as a kid and yeah, running around in circles does seem uh, pointless, but really in actuality, there's a lot of skill oh, to yeah. it Absolutely. and there's a lot of things that go into it. So it's, it is kind of fun, but I think it is something you have to really love. Otherwise you're just, it's like watching paint dry. We got a place around here. It's got a, it's a local re- raceway and they, I, I like going there. They, I, I like, I like, I like the really hardcore redneck stuff. I really like the figure eight bus races and they've yeah. got races where they tow <laughs> boats behind the car. Yes. You know, that stuff I love. I'm like, okay. That's a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm like, this is a blast. This is really cool. Cause there's something, there's wrecks and there's craziness and mm-hmm. you know, it's just nutty stuff where it's like, okay, we're watching cars go around in a circle and oh, there's a wreck, you know, it's. It's like, all right, if I'm going to watch a race, I got to see some crazy stuff. But anyway, when they set things on fire, that's even yes, better. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So anyways, <laughs> um, yeah, I've been doing this for probably 20, 26, 24 years. And I got into it because there was a buddy of mine and we were talking about like Lord of the Rings or whatever it was. And then I brought up the topic of mead. I'd never had mead before. My buddy's like, well, do you want to make some? And I'm like, what? And he goes, yeah, I make beer and wine. And much like everybody else, when you tell them that you do this stuff, it's getting easier now. But back then, it was like, what, what do you mean make beer and wine? You can't, you don't make beer and wine, not realizing that we're, we're just beer, like, the magical beer fairy shows up and boom, there's beer and wine there. No, you <laughs> you know, but I didn't, I never, it never occurred to me that the average Joe could sit and make their own beer and wine. So uh, I said, yeah, I'm interested in doing this. And then I got into it and I was really fascinated by the whole process of it because I've always had an interest in alchemy. Um, I've always had an interest in that kind of in that kind of thing in the history of alchemy and how all this stuff came along and a lot of medicines and legitimate science came out of alchemy. So uh, I was like, wow, this is really cool. I do this, this and this and I get alcohol, you know, and uh, that's how I get into it. And the first thing that I ever made and the easiest thing, in my opinion, to make is mead. Um, mead's now been you around. You mentioned Lord of the Rings. Is that what the Hobbit drank with the? Well, the, it's, you always the elves, see it. You always see it mentioned. Out. Yeah, you you see it mentioned in like the Epic of Gilgamesh. You see it mentioned mm-hmm. in like Dungeons. Because again, here I am showing my geekness. I I used to play a lot of Dungeons and Dragons, and you were just sitting. Okay, well, I order up a hearty mead, and I'd be like, "What is mead?" On my buddies, it's beer. Yeah, that's just what they called beer back then. Well, actually, it's not. It's completely different. But um. And I was like, so, you know, I was like, mead, yeah, what is this, you know, magical elixir that everybody talks about and all these old stories and games and stuff like that, you know? Um, So what mead is, it's very simple to make. It's been around for forever. It's been a lot, been around for 
as long as anybody can remember. They think that it actually came out of like Africa. Uh, Vikings are usually the ones that get the credit for mead. You know, you always see like like watch the show Vikings or when you watch Viking movies and stuff, they're always like, yeah, mead. You know, they're always getting <laughs> drunk off the stuff. Um, but actually, it's believed to have come out of Africa. And what mead essentially is, is it's literally water, honey, and yeast. You guys can make mead yourself, um, and I can teach you how. And I, I actually, I will right now. If anybody out there, and I have got a few listeners, I got a listener down in Florida who's gotten me back into making small batches. If you would want to make a batch of mead, how you do it is go to a grocery store and buy one of those really cheap one-gallon jugs of wine. Um, drink it or dump it out. Hey, drink it. Keep the jug. Wash the jug out. Then what you're going to do is you can go to usually a gallon of mead is made from anywhere with three to five pounds of honey. Um, wow. If you want a sweeter mead, you can use five pounds of honey. Uh, if you want a drier mead with more alcohol and less honey taste, you go around the three pounds. So you'll take that and you'll mix it with a gallon of water. You put that inside the jug, and then you so can one go one to one ratio. Well, no, it's actually like more of a three to one or a five to one. So you want three pounds of honey, three to five pounds of honey, depending on what kind of mead you want to make. If you want to be really ghetto about it, uh, you can. You don't even. You can go to the store and just buy like a little package of Fleischmann's dry yeast that you use to make bread with. Mm-hmm. I don't recommend that. Um, you can now get a lot of this stuff very easily on Amazon. Go on Amazon, type in uh, mead yeast, and a bunch of links will pop up, and you can order a package of mead yeast for a couple of bucks, and they'll mail it to you. You need to get a vapor lock, which is a rubber thing. It's a rubber stopper that goes into the top of the one-gallon jug. And then you need to get what's called a vapor lock. And what that does is that it lets air out, but it doesn't let air back in. When you put the yeast into the honey and the water and you put the vapor lock on, make sure no air gets back in there, what happens is, is the yeast eats the sugars that are in the honey, it poops out alcohol, and it breathes out carbon dioxide. So what happens is it starts perking. It starts going bloop, bloop, bloop. You'll see bubbles come out of it. The reason why you don't want to let air back into it is because brewing yeast is a whore and will breed with any kind of wild yeast that it comes in contact with. So you want to make sure that nothing wild gets in there to affect the flavor and sour it. It'll probably perk for a few weeks, depending on how uh, how high the honey is. If you have five pounds of honey in there, what will happen is the yeast will eventually eat the, uh, the honey to the point where it can no longer produce any more alcohol because the alcohol is so strong in it that it kills the yeast off and you'll have a sweeter mead. Um, is there is there any danger to drinking the soured or is it no, just No, it just not has very... a soured flavor to it. You'll know it's they call it contamination. The absolute worst that'll happen to you is you might get like diarrhea or something like that. Mm. There are okay, actually so Go ahead. Let me let me backtrack a little bit. You're starting out with a 1 gallon jug. 1 gallon glass one, jug. Yes. 1 gallon of water. You'll take 1 gallon of water and you'll um you'll mix three, that with 3, three pounds th- of honey. 3 pounds of honey. And how much yeast? Uh, one package of yeast. Since you're okay. doing a one-gallon batch, I would probably use a half package of yeast. You can okay. put the full one in there, and the full package of yeast will eat the sugars much faster. It will ferment much quicker, uh, but it may have a stronger, yeastier flavor to it. That'll take a little bit longer for it to go away. Uh, say, say if you wanted to flavor it with, uh, have you heard of people like putting certain things like berries or herbs in there? You're asking about it? hallucinogenics without actually asking about hallucinogenics <laughs> is what you're trying to do. And yes, there is instances where people have done that. Uh, going back, back into the Wayback Machine, back in the days of early beer and wine and things like that that were made way, way back, we're talking like 
I don't know, 10,000 years ago. Uh, the mm-hmm. stuff that they drank doesn't taste, didn't taste the way that it does now. And they know this because they have found old recipes and they have made those. And I can actually send you a link to make something like something like this if you want to make it yourself. That would be really cool. And there are people that use like henbane, uh, nightshade, all of these different things to uh, A, affect the flavor of it and give it a more herbal flavor. And also Mm -hmm. to give it more of a hallucinatory effect. Uh, So um, you want to have the alcohol in there, plus you had the hallucinatory stuff in there on top of that. Now, I've read different things. I've read that people that use henbane, uh, there's still people that brew with henbane, actually. Mm -hmm. And they say that uh, it's over-confabulated, that it's not as powerful um, of a hallucinogen as they say it was. Um, You also hear stories of people that make, um, well, absinthe. The original absinthe absinthe that they had overseas is -hmm. different from the stuff they sell in America because that stuff overseas had wormwood in it. Um, Yeah. But there are people that they used to use these things back then because at one time, uh, hops was believed to be poisonous. Hops was thought to be a poisonous plant. And hops eventually began to be used in beers because, A, it added the flavoring agent to it. Hops is what adds the bitterness to the beer. And at the same time, it's also a preservative. So uh, this is where you, you have pale ales, and then you have what were called Indian pale ales, which myself, I cannot, under, I cannot stand Indian pale ales. Um, side <laughs> that's note. My, that's my drink right there. Well, IPAs. Indian pale ales, I'll go real quickly off onto that, and then I'll go back to it. But Indian pale ales came about because the brewers that were in Britain were brewing beer to send down to uh, troops over in India. So what they would do is to make sure that the beers made it through the traveling of the trip, you know, the made it lasted through there, they added extra hops to it because hops acts as a preservative for beer so uh as as well as preserving the beer it also gave it a much hoppier flavor well that Mm. just stuck around over the years and indian pale ales became a thing you know um i like it because it has one of the highest abvs mm -hmm. around but going back to um mead i've never tried it i don't know if kelly have you tried it uh no i haven't tried mead it's I haven't done anything com- like that. Compared to like beer and wine, what would be the, the closest taste? you can compare it to would be a white wine. It can have many flavors. There's many different kinds of meads. Um, you have uh, sizers, which are meads that are made with uh, some kind of a cider. Like actually, I'm drinking one right now. I have a. I'm drinking a pear mead that uh, pear ginger mead. I believe it's a mead that me and a friend of mine's husband made a few weeks ago. There was a video of me. Uh, bottling it that I posted on Facebook mm-hmm. um, and I'm drinking that um, but there's there's all different variations of it different parts of the world make it differently the Vikings made something they called uh, called uh, Viking blood which basically was cherries it was a cherry mead and uh, I believe it had coriander and it had some extra flavorings and stuff in it um, and that was their main drink you know they uh, you very can, cool yeah, there's there's all different variations of mead, but the base ver- uh-huh. the base mead is just honey, water, and yeast, and it's very very simple to make. It's not hard at all. Well, about the Solanaceae family, uh, henbane, nightshade, mandrake, right. and those are actually poisonous. So the people that I know who put them in brews that I've heard about, uh, they they drink them maybe once twice a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, these like pagan festivals, the the solstices or something. It's not something they're consuming like every day or, or even every week uh, because they are very dangerous. How about meadow sweet? Have you ever heard of anybody making anything with meadow sweet? Are you familiar with that? I am not familiar with meadow sweet. Meadow sweet is another form of a mild hallucinogen that people to this day still very much brew with. 
Um, there's a recipe floating around online. Um, it's it's more of a beer. It's not really it's it's not more it's not mead, but it's more of a beer. But there's lots of examples of these hallucinogen like wines that were out there. Um, I I see it's also called meadwort. Mm-hmm. Uh, Terrence McKenna he's often talks about in antiquity. Uh, the beers being psychedelic, and uh, I don't know if mushrooms is possible or not, but uh, he kind of poses it to where before the church came in and said, "No, no, don't be putting this in your beer." That that's it. there was a m- variety of uh, altering herbs and substances brewed. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Not not in the least bit, because um, as we're going to go into, um, well, we might as well go there now. Uh, for the longest time, up until about the 15th and 16th century, women were the primary brewers. Uh, before that, the shamans were the primary brewers. Each of them brewed stuff, brewed beer, uh, wines, and things like that for a variety of different reasons. Shamans primarily brewed them for the religious experience, and also at the same time, they were brewing these things for medical qualities. Um, that just kind of evolved and went along. As you had the men who were going out to hunt down the meat, uh, the hunter-gatherers, the women were charged with being at home. Uh, they were the ones that were taking the grains, making the breads, and so forth. The women were traditionally, for the longest time, the people who did all of the brewing. They were the ones that brewed the beer. Uh, they were the ones that made the mead. They were the ones that made the wine. And as time went on, this is where a lot of, well, supposedly, I don't know how true this is because as with most witchcraft folklore some of it like as when i was on your guys's halloween show we were talking about there about how when witches rode brooms the legend came about that witches would put these salves on their brooms and they would use them for sexual aids it turns out that a lot of that stuff turns out to be false that was uh more like propaganda i guess you would say so, so i'm not even sure if that should i be doing true. that um, it, it, because it's not whatever true. you should do I, with your brooms still do it? and your orifices <laughs> is completely your business. Um, <laughs> I noticed Kelly is remarkably silent here. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just let him go. Like when he goes into those little tangents, I'm like, you go ahead, honey. Stick the poles wherever you'd that's like. In my head right now is I need brain bleach. But anyways, um, so yeah, the women were traditionally the brewers that that did all of this stuff. Well, they were the ones that what they started doing is they started making more or less a business out of it. In those times, women weren't allowed to own land. They weren't allowed to own a business. Nothing of stature. This women weren't allowed to do that. So this is where the legends of witches brewing in kettles and uh, tall pointed hats, uh, cats, um, brooms, a lot of these things all tie into this, supposedly. You, I'm a little skeptical about it because it sounds mm-hmm. like it could be true. But again, this stuff was so long ago that legends evolve over time. So a legend could be just that a legend. So what were you going to say? I heard you mention it, the mythological uh, history of brewing, which I think is a very cool way to uh, view it. Well, there uh, are think, brewing gods. There, there are actual gods of brewing, believe it or not. Well, that's what I was just going to ask. Uh, you know, in the interview we did with the Black Cat book, we talked about the Agathos daemon, which was a spirit of grain fields and vineyards. And right mm-hmm. there, uh, let's say you are in brewing. What ingredients would you need like access to to brew? Literally any kind of sugar, water, and yeast. Um, beer, beer at its basic 
is wheat that has been boiled. The sugars have been removed from the, the that's boiled in a wort. The sugars have been removed from from the the grains. So what you're left with is basically sugary water, for lack of a better term. And then what happens is you put the yeast in there, and again, just like what happens with mead, the yeast eats the sugar from the grain, and that ferments into alcohol. The hops was added later on. Uh, there was different huh. ingredients, like for a while, pine needles were used. All of these different things were used for many, many years to give the beer more of a flavor. And at the same time, they were looking for preservatives, and that's that's how a lot of people discovered, oh, this is hallucinogenic, blah, blah, blah. We can do this, or we can use that. Because it wasn't until much later that hops were discovered to not be poisonous. And once hops were discovered, it was like, oh, this adds a bittering agent to the beer. It preserves it, so it not only makes it taste good, but it makes the beer last longer. Because um, beer, you'd, you'd make it, and, you know, the, 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 going back to the women... Well, let's 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 stick on a little bit of course here. <laughs> we'll finish up with the women thing and we'll move on. Um, we'll go back to that and then we'll move ahead. So the women, going back to them, this is where the legend of cauldrons and stuff came from. Women, uh, the witch's cauldron comes from, women would sit around and brew beer. So to make beer, you have to boil the wort. You have to boil the uh, the grains and everything to get the wort out of it. So you hmm. forever had this image of these women sitting around these giant pots boiling witch's brew. And that's what, you know, okay, well, witches have big pots. You know, they're brewing up potions and stuff. That's where that came from. Now, the pointy hat thing... That was more of a marketing thing. So you would go to a market, and if you wanted to buy brew or do whatever, you would look for the women with the pointy hats. These hats would be, they would be actually like two to three feet high and ending a point because they would stick out above the crowd. So if you look, okay, there's a woman with a pointy hat. There's a woman with a pointy hat over there. Those are the people that were selling the beer. And that's how you found them was with the whole pointy hat thing. If you had a pointy hat on, you were known as a brewster, or they were also referred to as alewives, and sometimes they were also referred to as beer witches, like here you know, like a serving winch or something like that. So they had, that's the names that they went on there. It was Brewsters, Alewives, or, you know, Beer Witches. And if you wanted that stuff, that's where you'd go. Now, you you mentioned uh, it was called Wart that yeah. they were boiling out of. That's really interesting to me. That's still what it's called today. I'm I'm familiar with Mug, Mugwort, Masterwort, Motherwort. There's all kinds of warts, ragwort, go down the line. Mm -hmm. uh, probably hundreds of herbs are referred to as a wart, which kind of suggests that uh, these were used in something, boiling them down. That's interesting. That's probably very possible. I can't confirm that, but the logic behind it makes sense to me. So when these alewives would get done brewing their beer and they wanted to let, let people know that the beer was ready, well, again, them being women, not actually being able to have a formal business of any kind, what they would do is they would put the broom out in front of like a sign. They would hang the broom sideways. So, again, if you were looking for a place that sold, sold beer or something like that, if you knew they were actually selling it open for business, they would have the broom sticking out sideways, and that was what they used as their sign to let people know, hey, our beer's <laughs> ready. We're now selling beer. Um, all that all that changed in the 15th and 16th century when the Spanish Inquisition came along. Um, at that point, women began being known as witches because men came in, being the you know being what we are. You know, we came in like okay, well, men, women are making money on this, so we're going to start doing this, and then we're going to start belittling women as witches. And again, a lot of these witchcraft trials, um, these were ways to grab money or things like that away from women, demean women, knock them down to a lower stature. And men just kind of took over the whole brewing trade, which it would be, it kind of bums me out. Like it, as weird as this is going to sound, 
there mm-hmm. are a few breweries out there that are owned by women. And it's really whenever I see that, I'm like, that's that's really cool. You know, it's, yeah. it's really cool when I see a chick brewing stuff or making stuff. It's like that's your heritage. That's your history. You know, I'm not saying I say that a woman's place is in the home barefoot in the kitchen making beer. I wish my wife did. There's nothing wrong with that. Kelly, get mm-hmm. on it. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just really cool to see women that are, are getting back into this and are starting to re-embrace brewing and, and winemaking and all this stuff. I have a listener down in Florida, as I was saying earlier, she sent me a message. How do I do this? So I, you know, I walked her through the whole process and now she's off and running and doing it on her own. She's doing small batches and I have, I usually brew five, six gallon batches. Now I've gone back into making these, uh, little one gallon experimental batches and stuff. And I'm having a lot of fun with it. That is awesome. I see. I mean, it's quite a lucrative business right now. Yes. Uh, breweries are popping up everywhere and people love that. It's not like a Budweiser. It's something that's, uh, art artisanal. Exactly. And, That's uh, what I love about it. Now, the big brewing yeah. companies are trying really, really hard. Um, they're lobbying and they're buying up companies. Uh, they're, they used to try to put these companies out of business because there's a company called Unibev. I won't go very deeply into this because it's a whole show entirely. But you have companies like Budweiser. This Unibev company comes along and buys all these breweries out. So now they're trying to – what it is is these small artisanal shops, these little microbreweries micro – are really starting to bite into like the Budweiser pocketbooks. And mm-hmm. a lot of these big companies are really getting annoyed by that. So they're trying to, um, they're either trying to buy out the small companies, they just buy them out. They don't change the name of them or nothing like that. They just take mm-hmm. over ownership of them. They try to absorb them or they try to make it to where they own the distribution methods to keep these smaller companies from distributing, you know, beers and stuff all over the place. But it's kind of a losing battle because microbreweries are popping up all over the place. Um, anybody can make beer, but making good beer is a different story. Mm. Um, I, my, my, my meads and my wines, I'm very, very, I'm very proud of those. My beer, it's kind of like, yeah, there, there actually is a lot more to making beer than, than it seems. It's not hard, but to make, you know, you have to understand what different kinds of yeast you should use, um, what temperature is to it, boil certain things at, you know, et cetera. Is it like these brewmasters sometimes you see on yes. a TV show or something and they'll like go around dipping their finger, tasting it yep. and like their tongue is like so nuanced. Is it, it that you have to be like that? I, I would say so more. I, I think that's a little bit more, you know, show showmanship. But there are now like when I started doing this 26 years ago, there, there really wasn't. You know, it was just it was a family thing passed on. It was a skilled mm-hmm. trade. You know, the brewmaster would teach the next person. Now there's college mm-hmm. courses. And yes, I know, was just going to say yeah. here at AB Tech, uh, that, that is a very popular course. And you see just as many females as males uh, that have interest in that course, which is really cool. Yeah, it's, but we it's were awesome. Just, yeah, we were just over. Um, Kelly, what's the next county called? Uh, well, we were still in oh Yancey County. Yeah, they got their first uh, brewery there in Burnsville. Yeah. And it's by a local guy. And they said that he has worked for several companies, like the bigger known companies. So apparently that skill set you're talking about, he's bringing it to a local scene. So this is a corporate guy gone into more of a uh, artisanal type uh, viewpoint. Like I say, Burnsville, this is the first one. So it's Mm -hmm. just tremendous potential for... Uh, success in some places with this, which is why I'm interested, honestly. <laughs> well, again, it's it's not 
like I, I remember you you posted something on Facebook about how you wanted to open up. You guys were talking about opening up a food car and you wanted to do a brewery. And my first thought was, well, why don't you do them both? Create, you know, create like a, a brewery business that goes to like street fairs and sets up and sells stuff. And you guys could just do both at the same time. Mm-hmm. And you were talking about how you wanted to uh, bring up the whole witching kind of thing to it with the pointy hats. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah, that'd be that'd be sweet as hell. You know, Honestly, I think that'd be really cool. <laughs> I haven't I haven't mentioned this anywhere, but my idea I would love to have a brewery that has crafted seven different beers that have herbs uh, that correspond to the seven planets and make them like you know, there's a Venusian beer. And uh, stuff like that. Do, Do all it. seven. So that would be my line. The seven uh, brews. That wouldn't be. You could do that. And I think you'd probably be OK with doing it because right now the emphasis is on I need to make an IPA. I need to make a mm-hmm, stout. Mm-hmm. I need to make a this blah, blah, blah. And you don't you know, the only the real smaller there's like we've got a company up here called Founders and there's another one called Dark Horse that for a while had an, it's a reality had a reality television show. And you're starting to find all these other breweries like Rogue Brewery that are starting to go off and experiment with all these different unusual combinations, which is fine in my opinion, because it's like, well, I'm going to go buy an IPA. Okay, well, there's 9,000 different IPA beers out there. So to have somebody come along and try something different, you know, with these different different brews and stuff, you might actually have something there. You could you could do something neat. You could have that whole there's a whole, I don't want to say marketing, but there's like a whole, I could see a whole thing surrounding that. You know, I could see like, yeah. you know, the whole magical kind of thing, you know, that, that could be the shtick for it, for lack of a better term. But um, you're, you're doing it just because you love it. And it's yeah, like, it's, you know, I'm, I'm just one of those you're guys not selling like, no, you're not out there selling, but no. you probably gift them to, uh, you know, yeah. more intimate friends and stuff like that. So yeah. that's really cool. That's the what other is, thing you're going to run into when you start doing this is people are like, Oh, can I have some, you know? And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're going to make five gallons of something and then before you know it, you don't have much left because you've given it to everybody. So what usually happens is, like I was saying earlier, I've, um, I've I've met a lot of people through the show that I've gotten into brewing. There's another podcast that I work with and I got those guys in the brewing. Uh, a couple of my listeners, I actually, that are local, I actually brew with them. There's a few of them that are out of state that I've I've kind of got going on their own little path and they're doing their own things and they're trying their own experimentations. And usually what will happen is like with me and my local buddies, they'll brew five gallons of something and I'll make five gallons of something and we'll just, well, here's two bottles of this for two bottles of that and blah, blah, blah. We just exchange bottles and stuff like that when we're done. That is really cool. Do you ever still buy beers? Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes I do. But I I tend to buy the more exotic stuff when I go into a place. Yeah, I was just going to say, what are are some of your favorite uh, breweries? Um, Are they local? There is a couple of local ones that I like a lot. There's one called Founders, which probably should be making its way out to you guys pretty soon. They're growing exponentially. But they make a beer called Dirty Bastard that I like a lot. Um, They make make, uh, this really off-the-wall watermelon sea salt one that's pretty interesting. That's more of a a wine. Um, Hmm. There's a company called um, uh, Framois that's a French company that makes something called Alambic which is more of a raz. They make a couple of different ones. They're like a fruit beer and they encourage that wild yeast getting in there and making it sour. It's a very different kind of thing. Um, but actually as, as funny as it sounds, I'm not like, I, I really don't like beer a whole lot. So the stuff that I drink, it's usually very different than what's normally out there. The closest to a normal beer that I brew, that I drink is uh, around Detroit. And for a long time, there was a company called Stroh's. It got really big and then they just kind of disintegrated and fell apart. 
uh, they're now beginning to make beer again off of the original family recipe. And the people that are making the beer, it's like one of the sons of the original brewmaster that he was actually working for Samuel Adams, and they written recruited him back and brought him back to Detroit. And now they're making the original Stroh's beer again, the original Stroh's oh, Bohemian wow. beer. And it's like, wow, this is great. This is the... Again, it's the history that I really appreciate, like the mm-hmm. Stroh's beer that was really, really big for the longest time, and then the family sold everything out, and the company just kind of fell apart. They're reviving it, bringing it back. I um, think Stroh's made it up to Buffalo, if I remember. That sounds probably. really familiar to me. Yeah, yeah I Stroh's. remember hearing of that. Yeah, and then for a while during Prohibition, they started making ice cream because they, they couldn't make <laughs> alcohol anymore. Then Prohibition, and they went back into beer, and they had a huge family fortune, and they kind of... Uh, the family kind of fragmented the company, and the whole brewery just kind of fell apart. They were still selling Stroh's beer, but it wasn't the original recipe. It was just like generic beer B with the name Stroh's mm-hmm. on it. Here you go. Mm-hmm. Buy it. Oh, Stroh's. I heard this is good. I'm going to buy this. Not really realizing what the original recipe was. So the original one was like a it's like a, a lager kind of beer. That's another thing you need to get into. When you, when you start doing this, you need to understand the differences of beers. Okay, so I'm sure you've had a porter, and I'm sure you've had a stout. Do you know what the differences between porters, stouts, Indian pale ales, and all of those kind of things are? I I do not. Okay. Uh, also, a wheat beer. Like, what would, is that a pale? Uh, you can like, make yeah. a pale ale wheat beer. Wheat beer is just literally beer made from wheat. Uh, it's usually a German kind of thing. Um, with stouts and uh, stouts and porters, there really isn't much of a difference between the two. They're generally just very dark. They have a, a higher alcohol content. And with stouts and porters, what they do is they take the grain that they're going to make the beer out of and they roast it and they kind of cook it and they darken it. And that's where it gets that darker, richer flavor from. Think Mm -hmm. of it like coffee. You have light roasted coffee and dark roasted coffee. It's still coffee. It's just the way they've kind of cooked it to enrich the flavor of it. And that's where porters and stouts come from. Uh, The different kinds of yeasts that you have, most beers are generally either laggers or ales. Now, I know somebody out there, it's probably a brewer, is going to hear this right now and go, nope, nope, you're wrong, Ro. I probably am wrong because there's so much richness to this. Now, ale yeast is usually yeast that you put in the top and it ferments from the top down to the bottom of the batch. Lager yeasts pretty much came from Germany and they would uh, make beer and they would store it for the wintertime. So lager, you know, lagered beers, um, it's a process of fermenting the beer in a colder temperature. And it uses a special kind of yeast that's more forgiving and ferments better in colder temperatures. So that's why you have like Newcastle Brown Ale. When it says ale, that's the kind of yeast it uses. And you'll see something else that's like uh, blah, 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 lager. Um, Again, that's just a different kind of beer, and it's going to taste different maybe because of the yeast that it used to ferment it will affect the flavor of the beer. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Can you? Is yeah. this something you can do yourself with a grocery store yeast, or do you need like a well, special brewer's yeast? Special brewer's yeast works best. No, as I was saying earlier, if you want to be ghetto about it, you can go to a grocery store, you can buy beer, uh, bread yeast, and you can use that stuff. And there's a lot of videos all over YouTube. You can go in and type in how to make Applejack. And I just made some myself recently, um, which is like um, it's like uh, three pounds of brown sugar and a gallon of apple cider. And then the people in the videos usually will go and use like store bought yeast. It's very it's it's very backwards redneckish, and done properly. <laughs> it does taste very well. But what I tell people is go on Amazon. Most of the stuff you need now you can get you can get ninety percent of the stuff either at grocery stores and what you can't get at the grocery store you can get on your friend Amazon. Go to Amazon, type in brewers yeast, and boom, you'll get all kinds of different things will pop up for different kind of brewing yeasts. 
And they're not much. They're like two bucks a package. Very easy to get. Um, if you want to make your own wine, like my friend down in Florida, uh, uh-huh. she has, how do I get into some? I'm like, well, the easiest way to do it, get the glass, get the ga- uh, glass gallon jug, which she found somewhere, I think, again, on Amazon or uh, I think she got it through um, Walmart or something. Um, and then go to the grocery store, buy yourself some juice, juice, <laughs> juice, uh, buy yourself <laughs> some juice. Make sure it is 100% pure, uh, no preservatives. If there's any kind of preservatives that's in the juice when you buy it, that will kill the yeast that you're putting in there because it's a preservative. Mm. It's made to kill yeast to keep it from spoiling. So there's all kinds of uh, juices you can buy at the grocery store that don't have preservatives in them. Uh, Juicy Juice, I believe, is one of them. It's a 100% pure juice. Uh, a lot of them are made with apple. and are apple uh-huh. juice that's just flavored. Well, spoiler, that's where Boone's Farm wine comes from, if you know what Boone's Farm is. Yes, I do. Pretty much every teenager, that you know, it was like, I'm going to go <laughs> buy Boone's Farm and I'm going to be cool because I'm drinking. Well, Boone's Farm, it, very little alcohol in it. It's more or less just apple wine with flavoring. But you can go to the grocery store. You can buy that. Um, some people buy corn syrup. Um, I don't personally like it because it's got like vanilla and stuff in it. And sometimes mm-hmm. there's preserves in it that kill the yeast. But most of the time you can just go buy that. You can buy some corn sugar off of Amazon. Take the uh, whatever juice you got. Mix some corn sugar with it. Um, toss the yeast in. Let it ferment the same way you did with the mead. As long as um, the big important thing about anything that you brew. So even when you start doing this, because um, it's mm-hmm. again, this is very easy for you to do. I'm going to get you into this. The big thing that you need to remember, anybody, if they want to get into this, the biggest, biggest thing is sanitation. You have to sanitize everything. Anything that comes in contact with what you're brewing needs to be sanitized. Um, I usually just use water and bleach. I'll get a thing of hot, like fill a tub with uh, hot water and bleach. Let the stuff sit in there, soak it, wash it up real good. Put it in there, let it soak, let it sanitize. Take it out, wash it out real good. Let it dry off and start doing it. If, uh, if you don't sanitize, can you get contamination very yes, easily? Yes, any kind because if you don't sanitize, any wild airborne yeast or just any any kind of bacteria in general is very easily to contaminate. Because when yeah. yeast is eating the sugars, it's reproducing very quickly. Think of them as um, sea monkeys. That's a better way. Mm-hmm. To, I, t- I tell people that what it, yeast is alive and it's swimming around in there. So, mm-hmm. is there any kind of contamination that is dangerous? Um, we can take place in the, or does uh, the alcohol take care of that? No, what, what, well, the alcohol usually doesn't get that high to be honest with you. So what, what the worst, what's I, I just had it happen uh, two weeks ago. Sometimes what'll happen is, is that, um, the contamination might be there, but it'll take a while to go and it'll actually over, it'll actually over ferment and it'll pressurize and it can blow your bottles up. Uh-oh. Um, stuff like that can happen. <laughs> um, Usually what I do when I'm making meat or wine is when I get it to a point where it's at and I'm like, okay, this is where I want it. I don't want it to ferment anymore. I like it where it's as sweet as it is now. You get this stuff called potassium sorbate and you put about a teaspoon in there for every gallon that you're making. So a one gallon batch, you put a teaspoon in there. That kills the yeast off and stops it from fermenting. And then Mm. you let it sit for about a week and everything settles to the bottom of the container. And that's what kills it off. Now you can't do that with beer. Because when you're making beer, when the beer is done fermenting, all the yeast will go into like a state of hibernation and it'll settle. And you still got like micro yeast floating around in there. So with beer, when I, I naturally carbonate it. Now, if you're doing kegging, you can do home kegging too. Most people skip this step. They just run CO2 through it. And that carbonates the beer and it gets all the junk out of it. Like with the first, you put a CO2 and you open it up. It gets all the junk out of the bottom of the bottle. All the yeast and stuff all gets pushed mm-hmm. out of it. 
For natural carbonation, which is what I do, mm-hmm. I will take it out of the fermenter, transfer it through a tube to a bottling bucket, and then I will take one cup of corn sugar, and I will melt that in a little bit of water, and I'll dump it into the beer, and I'll stir it up, and then I'll bottle it. That one cup of corn sugar, the yeast reactivates, it eats that cup of corn sugar that's in there, and again, when beer eats sugar, I mean, uh, when yeast eats sugar, it poops out alcohol, breathes out carbon dioxide. Well, that carbon dioxide has nowhere to escape, so it stays inside the bottle and it carbonates the beer. And then when it's done, all the yeast settles in there. So when you look at home-brewed natural beer, natural, uh, naturally um, carbonated beer, you have mm-hmm. a small layer of yeast on the very bottom of the bottle, just like the Germans do. So when you're pouring it, you kind of have to like you want to make sure that you don't get any of that into your beer because it gives your beer a yeasty flavor. So when you're pouring it, you leave a little bit into the bottle and that's the angel's cut. That's (laughs) Kelly and I have made kombucha. So we get that natural fermentation. Mm -hmm. Is there any crossover if you leave your kombucha for uh, quite a bit? I guess that would turn alcoholic, wouldn't it? Yeah, it could if there's sugars in it. Yeah. Yeah, so it's possible. let's say I want to start tonight and make my own mead from tonight. Uh, how long would I have like a drinkable, nice mead? How long would that process it take? It would take about two to three weeks to ferment. And as soon as it's done fermenting and the yeast is killed off and everything is settled down, you can drink it within two to three weeks. Um, you're, Beer you about the same? Beer takes a little bit longer. Beer is a little bit more difficult to brew than, than mead. Mead is very simple. Mead is... Mead is probably mead and wine are the two easiest things in the world to make if you're starting so off on your own. Wine about two or three weeks too. Well, if you're making mead, let's say you're doing a mead, and let's say you're doing a one gallon batch, and you put three gallons of honey in there. Uh, from start, you take your honey, you go to the grocery store, you buy three pounds of honey, you get your uh, glass jug, wherever the heck you get your glass jug for, whatever you're going to ferment it into. Um, again, YouTube. There's all, you know, YouTube, Amazon, you go on Amazon, uh, type in uh, one gallon jug. You'll find them on Amazon for cheap. They'll mail them to them. Anyways, take your water, three gallons of honey. I mean, your uh, three pounds of honey. Uh, you want to boil You want to boil the honey. Uh, don't put the whole gallon of water in there. Boil the honey because when you boil the honey, it breaks it down, makes it easier for the yeast to eat the honey. So I would say boil the honey with maybe a half gallon of, uh, boil the honey with a half gallon of water. Boil it up, let it cool off, dump it into the one-gallon jug. After everything's been sanitized, dump it into the one-gallon jug, and then fill the one-gallon jug, not all the way to the top. You want to leave about four inches of space or three inches of space. Mm -hmm. You want to have a little bit of room in the jug. You put the vapor lock on. Again, if you don't know what that is, go Google um, vapor lock. I can show you. I can send you links in private on Facebook or whatever, and you'll go, oh, okay, I understand what that is. You put your yeast in there, put your vapor lock on. Make sure there's water in it so no air can gut back into it. Air can escape, and you just let it sit. Put it someplace dark and cool and let it I go. I was just going to say that. We have an awesome basement area that's dark and cool, so that's the environment that it should be in is a place like that, right? Yeah. You want to keep it in a nice, cool, dark area. Um, and just let it go, and you'll go down and check on it. It's the first time you ever brew anything. It's kind of like having your first child. I get this from everybody, and I tell people, too. I'm like... The first time you do this, you're going to be really super nervous because of what's going on. You're like, what is it mm-hmm. supposed to do this? Is I'm seeing yeah. foam on the top. Is that supposed it, to Am happen? I going to poison myself? Yeah. No, you're not <laughs> going to poison yourself. As long as you've sanitized everything properly, make sure everything is sanitized and clean, you'll be just fine. But just let it go. And then you'll see 
again, this, this is where the alchemical process starts. You'll see like the yeast just swirling around inside the container and you'll see bubbles come up the top and a little thing will just start perking and perking and perking. And then eventually that'll slow down and it'll stop perking completely. And when it's completely done, or when you think it's completely done, you just put a little potassium sorbate in there. Some people use cadmium tablets and let that go in there, let that kill the yeast off, and then boom, you're done. You know, and then if you want to, you can transfer it from one container to another one so the yeast doesn't, every time you transfer it, a little bit more of the yeast settles. Mm. But that's essentially it. And then within three weeks, it's drinkable. Now, I have a problem where uh, you should let this stuff age. It's like wine. The longer it sits, the more it's going to mellow, the better mm-hmm. the flavors are going to I was going to ask, do you have like cellars and cellars of stuff going back no. to like 1985 that you've made? No. No. <laughs> most like of my stuff doesn't. Somebody comes over and you're like, oh, let me show you 1992. No. No. I, I, I really don't. I'm, I'm really bad about it. Because the only thing that I drink is what I make. And I don't drink to get drunk. Um, a, because I'm a big guy. It takes a lot to get me drunk. And B, I just, I, I don't. I don't make the stuff to, to get drunk off of. I make the mm. stuff for the flavor of it and for the fact that it's kind of like when you're doing, which I also do, I, when you do your own canning and you make your own spaghetti yeah. sauce and or like when yeah, you make yeah. a kombucha, you know, you, you've made it. You know, you put your, it's like you said about on my show when you called me a wizard. It's, it's the effort and the energy and the bit mm-hmm. of yourself that you put into making this stuff. There's a real pride in it. Um, you know, and that's that's basically what it is for me. I just enjoy doing what I do. And sometimes, you know, I, I, I just this last year, I had two batches of beer that turned out got awful horrible. Um, about uh, two weeks ago, I made a one gallon batch of this raspberry wine that I was trying to make. And it turned out bad. I actually had like actual mold growing onto the top of it. I'm like, well, mm. that didn't work out. I must have not have sanitized it or something went wrong. Um, so, it, you know, sometimes you have your, your successes and you have your failures. Um, one of my bad habits is I never write down what I'm making. I just say, I wonder how this is going to work and I make it. And <laughs> that it, sounds like me. Yeah. It's, uh, it's chaos I'm in the brewing. Kitchen, that's exactly how it goes. <laughs> it's chaos brewing. If, if you want to equate it to magic, it's chaos brewing. I have, <laughs> I have an idea for what I want to do and I aim for it and I shoot. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, okay, it didn't. But you know, like I made a strawberry wine recently that was amazing probably the mm. best thing I've ever made. And I don't know if I could make it again. I've made some strawberry beers that were fantastic, but if I mm. had to make the same one over again, I probably couldn't do it. Um, there's dandelion so the, wine, you know, you can make wine. Oh, out of dandelion. dandelion wine. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh wow. That stuff. That is would strong. be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. How, how does that go? You need grapes, right? Um, or do you, there's different, there's lots of different variations. That's one of the things, anybody who's getting into this kind of stuff, if you go on, if you go online and say, how do I make an Indian mm-hmm. pale ale? It's going to mm-hmm. be, brrr, your screen's just going to fill up with different recipes. Like, again, yeah. I go back to my friend in Florida. She asked a question, how do I do this? And she's got family members and stuff that brew. And like 10 different people will tell you 10 different things. There I love is, that. That it speaks to like each person's development of their exactly. own. It's just like so, magic. How do I cast a spell to do this? You know, and mm-hmm. then boom, you're going to have all these different variations on how to do it. Well, you've got and, me interested. Uh, I'm thinking right now, Kelly, we have grapes, two different kinds of grapes growing at my mom's house. Uh, that would be really cool to experiment with that. Your strawberry wine. Like about how much did you make? Like somebody in an average size you know, place, do they need a lot of space, a lot of counter space um, to do this? It depends how much you want to make. If you're going to start doing this. Like what's an average batch? Like Kelly and I would. I, I would tell bottles? people if you're going to do it, I would say just jump into the deep end and start making five gallon batches at a time. Because it's actually I find 
for me, I've discovered it's a lot easier for me to make five gallon batch stuff than it is for me to make these one gallon batches. The one gallon batches are fun. They're kind of mad scientist mm-hmm. experiment. How is this going to turn out? Um, that's what I'm doing. I'm like, I don't know if this is going to work, but I'm doing it. And then my other friend's like, well, I'm doing this. So let's see what happens. Um, whereas the five gallon batches to, to get your initial equipment, that's the hard part is to buy your initial setup. Um, there's a website and a store that I go to called Adventures in Homebrew. And uh, they mail anywhere. And uh, fortunately, the place is right around the corner for me. But they have, in my opinion, the best selection of everything. And uh, you get all your basic starting stuff. Do you have a big giant pot? Let's start with that. Do you have a, a big pot of some kind? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. We do. Good. Actually, we have a couple. Okay. I have one that's like a huge sauce pot that I don't even think Aaron's seen yet. Oh, she's holding yeah. out on you. Huh. <laughs> so that's one of the most expensive things is buying those stupid pots. There, I, I went out and bought a turkey deep fryer and used the pot off of that, mm. to be honest with you. Because that holds about five gallons of water. So I can do the whole batch inside of one pot without a problem. Mm. But buy that. And then uh, most people, they'll start off with, uh, they basically look like um, you can be really ghetto about it and go to Home Depot and buy a five-gallon bucket, drill a hole in the top of it big enough to hold the vapor lock and do it that way. I just tell people just buy the basic um, either winemaking or beer making kit because they both use a lot of the same utensils. And mm. once you get your you got your fermenting bucket, then you got a bottling bucket, and you got a little thing that you can put inside the bottles to brew the bottle with. But I would tell you just jump in the deep end, start with five gallon batches, and go from there. Uh, like watermelon wine is something that me and mm-hmm. my one of my friends are going to be making very soon because watermelons are on sale right now, and it's it's not really hard to do. Watermelons are a lot of water, you know. Um, so we're going to try that out and see how that goes. Um, with you though, I would say learn the basics and, uh, you know, I would start with mead. Um, just start with small batches of mead, go from there. And once you learn, okay, this is how fermenting works. This is, this is how much honey to put in here and say, you know, do stuff like that yeah. and then start. Cause I know what you're going to do. You're not going to make the normal stuff. You're going to go for the more exotic stuff, which <laughs> I'm, I fully support that. Um, anybody that's going to go out there and try doing this stuff, you know, just go do it. It's it's just, again, like practicing magic. Just do it. It's not hard. Um, the downside of it is, is buying your initial equipment. It'll probably cost you about 150 bucks to get everything. But after that, you just reuse the stuff over and over again. Like my bottles, I don't buy bottles every time. I just, mm-hmm. I went out and bought a whole bunch of flip top Grosch style bottles that have like, uh, if you know what Grolsch beer is, you ever seen those? Yes, green bottles? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. if you see those, just buy Grolsch beer, dump the beer out or drink it, but save the bottles. You just wash mm-hmm. the bottles out, sanitize them and reuse them. Because once you've got that stuff, it's just like canning. You know, you don't throw your jars out when you're done. Right. You, you know, you throw the lid out and then you go out and buy new lids and you wash the jars and you recan them. But that's yeah, what we I tell actually you to do. have. We have those for uh, when we made uh, kombucha. Uh, so we have those on hand. Well, you could do so that $150. That's not bad for getting into a new no, hobby. Not at all. No, not not really. It's in, like it's some like if you're just making wine, you can use the jars that you use for canning your stuff. Go out and buy a bunch of canning jars because it's not going to be carbonated. It's going to be flat, so you don't have to worry about it holding pressure. Uh, there's a lot of that's you know people when they make moonshine they put it in mason jars. You know I've mm-hmm. when I made that uh, applejack I put it inside of a big and put it in mason jars. So. You know, a lot of people do that. Uh, there's people, the people in Alaska, when they make their mead, that's that's what they do. They put it inside of mason jars because up there getting bottles and getting beer bottles and cappers and stuff like that's kind of difficult. Well, you can get mason jars anywhere. You can go buy those at the grocery store half the time, you know. <clears throat> so uh, as long as you're not carbonating it and you're not putting it under a lot of pressure, that's going to blow the jars up. Mm-hmm. And if you're making mead, it's going to be flat. That'll get you started. And then 
I have a feeling once you get going, you're just going to want to be like, okay, now let's try this. Now let's try that. You know? <laughs> yeah. So mead sounds very doable. It's now, very easy. Th- this is kind of pushing the line. I don't want you to get in trouble with admitting anything, but about distilling. Uh, can we talk about that a bit? Sure. Distilling is very simple. That's the next step in the process. What you're doing with distilling. Now, this is where um, the legends of spirits and stuff. Distilling has been around for a long time. Originally, people distilled stuff not to make alcohol. They did it for, for like getting essential oils and they were doing it for medical purposes. And then at some point or another, uh, I believe it was Aristotle, was one of the first people to coin the term as spirits. The idea was, is as you said earlier, the grains and stuff like that, that when you were distilling this stuff, you were actually pulling the spirits of the grains right out of the grain. Um, and that was what you were getting. Um, but there's all, there's all kinds of different variations and things on that. Um, so what you're doing when you're distilling something. I actually got into distilling. I, I've distilled things, I think, twice. The last time that I distilled something was last year. And I probably won't do it again because what I distilled was so high in alcohol. It was, it was pretty much undrinkable <laughs> and I didn't want to go blind. But <laughs> Which I actually know a lady uh, here in the mountains, uh, some of the mountain folk. One person I know did go blind. Another, it actually killed the guy. Yeah, it's very possible. It's very, very possible. Now, I'll, I'll tell you how I distilled. Um, when you have the moonshiners, what they're doing is they're making what's called a mash. You get the corn, you boil it up, and what you're doing is you're extracting the sugars out of the corn. And then that is what they ferment, that what comes out of the, the corn and the, the, the liquid that comes out of it, that's what they're putting the yeast in with. They're fermenting that down and turning that into alcohol. Now, that stuff tastes horrible. It tastes very sour. It doesn't taste very good to drink. So what they're doing is they're taking, now that you've distilled, again, same thing with beer, wine, mead, yeast eats the sugar from the corn, converts it to alcohol. Boom, that's how you got it. Now, when you're distilling... Having an infection isn't as big of a deal because you're going to cook all that out of there. So you've now taken your corn. I used corn sugar. I I skipped a step and said, why would I want to use corn? All I'm looking for is the sugar. I'll just go buy corn sugar and I'll boil that with water, throw the yeast in. So boom, that's done. It takes about a week to ferment that, especially if you're making like five gallons. So you're going to take your five gallon wort that you've made and you put that inside of the still. What the still does is it very slowly raises the temperature of the liquid that's in there, the water. And what happens is, is that alcohol evaporates faster than water does. So what you're doing is you're putting inside of this device, and it's got to be airtight because you want all of the air, all of the gas and stuff to come out of the one source, which is the little curly Q thing that comes off to the side, and then that drips into like the mason jar or whatever you're mm-hmm. putting it into. I, I always think of the episode of Andy Griffith's show. Where it blows up. <laughs> yeah, and- Andy actually hits it with an axe and uh, starts licking the moonshine off his lips. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not <laughs> sweet. It is definitely, it, it, it is not, it, it's really high alcohol. It's not like, oh, wow, this this tastes like, like maple mm-hmm. syrup or something. No, it's very, the, the sweetness is completely fermented out of it. So yeah. anyhow, what happens is, is you're raising the temperature. You don't want to turn it up too high because you want to try, the idea is to get the alcohol out of the water. So mm-hmm. what happens is, is the vapors come up, they go through the curly Q. The purpose of the little curly, curly Q corkscrew thing is what happens is, is that usually these are all made 90% of the time. These are made out of either stainless steel or most of the time they're made out of copper because copper is cheaper. 
The mm. reason why is, is because the chemicals that are being released when you're converting and pulling the alcohol out of the wort, that stuff has got a causticness to it. I made mine last time out of a, for shits and giggles, I made mine out of a, um, a pressure cooker, which was an aluminum pressure cooker. And I took brake line because I worked in an automotive store. I took brake line and I used that as the, the copper tube and I made that as the big curly cube. And I ran that into an igloo cooler with a whole bunch of ice in it and that was what cooled it down. The reason the curly cue is there, which I'm getting to now, is as the vapor comes out of the um, the alcohol that vapor comes out of the liquid, it goes up into that thing, and you have cold water running along that tube, which is why you see on the moonshiner shows they're always like, "We need water, we need water." Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The purpose is is to cool the gas that's coming out. You need to cool that back down again until it turns back into a liquid. The gas that turns back into a liquid is where your alcohol comes from, and that's what's dripping in there. And the longer that that stuff boils for lack of a better term the more alcohol is evaporating out and eventually what happens is is once the alcohol is evaporated out the water starts to evaporate out so your proof which is the level of your alcohol goes down lower and lower and lower the longer that it sits in there now the reason these stills blow up on these television shows and all these old stories is the gas that's coming out of there is alcoholic gas and it's extremely flammable it's ethanol gas Mm. and it goes boom so if anybody is going to do this be advised that you can, you know, people have died and you can blow yourself up. I tell people if they're going to do it, go out and buy an electric heating coil. Don't use a gas stove. Don't use open flame because if you have any opportunity for the stuff to hit open flame, it'll explode. Wow. With a heating coil, it probably isn't going to blow up because it's not actually a flame. Um, but stills are expensive. You can buy a decent still. You can get a five-gallon one, which will mm-hmm. give you about, uh, depending on how high the alcohol of what your of what your wart is, you can usually get maybe uh, out of five gallons, you can get maybe a gallon and a half, close to two gallons of alcohol, depending on what, what you're actually fermenting. Um, okay. I have taken batches of beer and wine that I've made. Where there's still alcohol in there, but it tastes like garbage. Okay, this is infected. Rather than dump it all down the drain, it's like, hey, let's toss this into the uh, let's toss this into the still and see what kind of alcohol we can get out of it. And you distill oh, it. Oh, that's very cool. Now, rum yeah. is made from fermented brown sugar, made from molasses. That's what rum is made from. Uh, tequila is made from distilled uh, agave plant, like uh, cactuses. They distill agave. They take the sugars out of that, and that's what they get tequila from. They distill the liquid from that, and they make tequila. Uh, gin is made from gin berries. They ferment gin berries in water, and the alcohol that that makes is distilled, and that's what makes gin, you know? <clears throat> brandy? Brandy is more or less wine. Like, if you were to make, like, apricot brandy, you would make apricot wine. You'd make a high-alcohol apricot wine, and then you would uh, just okay. distill that, and that's what makes it into brandy. And I, I used to have rye whiskey. I guess that's coming from uh, the rye. You can get rye exactly. berries at the... Uh, you also well, grow mushrooms on rye berries. Or that's another thing. you get the rye that actually is grown in fields and it's made out of, that make they make bread out of. You mm-hmm. boil that down and you make more or less a beer wort without putting the hops in it. You ferment, you you take the, the rye and you uh, boil it same way you would beer and it makes mm-hmm. the water whatever color it does and then you ferment that and what what's left over you ferment that and you run that through the distiller and that was where you, it's where you get rye whiskey from it's a little bit more complicated than that but that's the base for it is the rye is, is there any rye beer type yeah. thing mm-hmm. right yeah, you can you can make yeah you can uh, you can use rye to make beer yep very common very common for that for huh. people to do that mm-hmm. well i was shocked that 
I was just getting into spagyrics and sort of the alchemy, which is described as there were all these old guys uh, doing this alchemy stuff with herbs and, and such. And they were putting psychological processes onto it. And uh, so this is where we get in magic. You start out with the black work and you go on uh, this inner work to the red work and so on and so forth. You're purifying your the essence of your own soul. And of course, Jung has uh, his entire psychology built around alchemical ideas and stuff that he borrowed from. But for well, me, it, transcends it was... Every, it, it transcends every like alchemy the, the ideas and concepts in alchemy can be applied to anything you can apply it to cooking you can apply it to house mm-hmm. cleaning you know the idea of taking something you're taking something from its root and you're trying to make it into something better like that's the analogy yeah. of lead into gold it wasn't so much about yeah there is the scientific aspect where lead and gold differ by only one um oh god i'm forgetting not molecule or whatever but um they only differ by one fraction of a thing. So the idea was, well, we should be able to transmute lead into gold. But the other allegory to it was, well, the idea is you're taking something, something that's inferior and making it into something, you know, superior, mm. you know, and that's uh, alchemy is a lot of allegory kind of things. That's why, you know, my podcast, I very frequently refer to me, my podcast is, is alchemy. I'm taking the mm-hmm. show and I'm polishing it up. I'm cutting it in. I'm putting these different things into it. And I'm making it from just an interview or whatever we're talking about into this show, you know, to make people laugh or teach people something or, you know, move something along. I'm taking something and transmuting it into something else. And it's this reoccurring theme. And now if you were to ask me about different schools of alchemy and stuff, I probably couldn't tell you a whole heck of a lot, even though I've read this stuff for years. But it's this idea of transmuting one thing from something minor into transmuting it into something greater and trying to achieve something greater through all that. And I think that's why I do brewing and canning and I like cooking mm-hmm. and I do all these crazy things and I'm into motorcycles and all this kind of stuff. I'm I'm not into them. Like I don't I don't brew and make to, to get drunk. I do it because I'm trying to create something cool. Yeah, know? that is so cool. I think you would be less likely when you're a part of the process to just go and like chug them like crazy, like uh, treat them like you would a Budweiser. Yeah, like that's that. There's nothing. I mean, Budweiser themselves might be like, "Yes, we're crafting a fine crafted beer, right?" Here, right. Blah blah blah. Whereas to me, I look at, it, I'm like, "You're you're mass producing a product that you can sell to as many people as you can." Yeah, it's just. Yeah, yeah, I don't it's, know. It's like when you put so much time and care and invested so much of yourself into yeah. all of this. It's it, like something that's prized. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Now, what I'm surprised you haven't asked me about yet is the whole Crowley thing. Yes, I was just, I was just had it. I was looking at it right now. I wrote it down earlier. I was like, ask. So, yeah, uh, we talked about Crowley Ale, and that's where Crowley's, Alistair Crowley's money came from. mm -hmm. Uh, That's why he was able to do what he did. He was spending his family fortune. Well, how that all came about. Actually, the brewing company that the Crowley's purchased had a huge significant impact on how people to this day still brew. And how that all came about is Abraham Crowley, who was, I think, Alistair's great, was great grandfather, great uncle. I think it was uh, grand. I think it was grandfather. No, it was grand uncle. It was it was Alistair Crowley's great uncle, Abraham Crowley. That's what it was. Hmm. And him and his two sons, they purchased uh, the Alton Brew House, and they purchased it from a guy named James Beaver. Ba- ba- James Baverstock. I keep wanting to call him Beaverstock, but it's Baverstock. <laughs> and um, they purchased that brewery in 1821. 
So it was a long time ago, and they were they were really big. Like you can go online and search for Crowley beers, and you can actually still find some of the old Crowley beer recipes out there. There's a few of them that oh, people still oh. brew to this dairy, very which that I can see you totally doing. Fascinating. I could totally see you opening up a beer stand and having Alistair Crowley beer, which a few companies that, have done. Um, oh man, that is awesome. So in 1768. Uh, Alton, the um, the guy who originally owned the beer house, they didn't fire him. They just kind of went and do. They said, "All right, we're going to buy it, but you guys are going to keep running it." He created this process, which we still use today. When you're when you brew beer or when you brew wine or whatever, and you want to know what the alcohol content is, what you have to do is use something called a hydrometer. And if you buy one of these kits that I'm telling you about, you'll get a hydrometer with it. Basically, what you do is after you get your wort all ready to go and you got it in there, you take a small sample of it and you put it inside of a beaker and you drop this thing that looks like a thermometer and you drop it in there. Depending on how far down it floats, it leaves it, there's a number, like a reading on it, like a thermometer. You write down the number. Then you ferment your beer and you do whatever you're going to do to it. And after it's all done, you take another sample of it, put it in the beaker, and you drop this thing in there again. Now, what happens is, is that after it ferments all the sugars, this thing floats at a higher level. So when it's got a lot of sugars in it, it sinks down lower. And when it has less sugars in it, it floats up higher. So what you do is you take the two numbers, you take the number of the first reading that you took, the second reading that you took, and there's a mathematical formula that you use, and that tells you what your percentage of alcohol is inside the beer or your wort or your moonshine or whatever the heck you're making. It tells you what the differences in the sugars are, and that's how you find out your alcohol percentage. And that was the guy who owned the Alton Brewery when the Crowleys bought it out. That guy was the one who created that process, which has carried over through all of these years. Um, Eventually, what happened is they sold the brewery off. The... um, the the guy who uh, the the family that owned it they sold it off and the guy uh, which was I believe it was Crowley's grandfather was the one that eventually was the, it was carried down to the family line I think uh, Crowley's grandfather or dad they sold it, was, it off to somebody else yeah definitely his grandfather I know his father Edward Crowley and his mother Rose uh, they were became extremely religious and so uh, of course that was that was maybe when they sold it they didn't want anything to do with that that uh, hell hell water fire yeah. water and then Crowley spent it all but here's another fun thing when you go by a bar and you see burger in a beer five dollars or you see the burger the burger in yeah. a beer special that was created by Crowley that was created by the Crowley family they were the first they were the first pubs to, to ever offer that kind of a beer and a sandwich kind of thing and over the I, years that just kind of evolved to beer and a, you know a beer and a burger kind of thing isn't that so amazing yeah, yeah I re- there's a guy named Richard Kaczynski who has uh, one of the biographies on Crowley and I remember him talking a bit about that mm-hmm. that there was no real concept of hey you can come in and get uh, beer and uh, we'll give you lunch too mm-hmm. but that was not some, nobody had ever thought of that before it was a very novel uh, thing and it was just wildly successful yeah it still carries over to that this is- day now also, we were talking about earlier, I've got them here. I was going to bring up that there are ancient brewing gods. There are, there are gods that were actually, um, if you were a brewer or a brewmeister or a mazer, which is a person who makes mead, I've, I've, I've been free. I was called a mazer for the longest time. I started getting involved in this community. And people like, oh, hey, you know, Mazer Rowe, how are you doing? Like, Mazer Rowe, you know, I was like, what are you talking? I thought they were like, again, referring like a wizard. Uh, you no, know, a person who makes me yeah. is considered a Mazer. So I was going to say, is that your Dungeons and Dragons like no. uh, character? <laughs> no. Like Mazer. No, I'm usually the guy that stucks, gets stuck DMing the group, actually. I haven't actually, <laughs> I, I'm usually the one running everything. 
But um, yeah, the ancient <laughs> Greeks had uh, Salinas, who was the god of he was like the, the the he was the main Greek god of alcohol, and he's always depicted as like being this big overweight balding guy that's always drunk that has to be carried out of everywhere. And he hung out with Dionysus, who Dionysus was another uh, Greek god that you prayed to if you were making uh, wines and stuff like that. Say you were a wine right, you know you'd probably worship Dionysus like you know please have favor on my wines and make them more more alcoholic so people won't mm. want to buy them more. And then you go even further back into that to the Sumerians, which are believed to be the first people that actually brewed everything. Their god was called uh, Ninkasi. Uh, I actually have this written down, so I'm having a hard time reading my own handwriting. I have all of these books where I took notes over the years. So when you say, mm -hmm. hey, let's do this, I, I literally had to go dig box of these books out and some of the stuff for because I don't want to read through my notes. I just pulled it up on the internet. But anyhow, uh, Nankasi was the original goddess of beer and, and brewing. Uh, goddess. She, yeah. She was the original goddess of brewing. Again, this goes back to the women. Most of the original goddesses were also uh, the, the female goddesses were the brewing gods. You know, they were the ones that were, except up to, until Greek culture. That's where kinds of changes in Greek culture. Osiris mm. was also the god of brewing. Osiris is generally known as the god of agriculture. But since uh, all of these things, wine, beer, all of these different things, honey, they all came from beasts. They all came from agriculture. So Osiris was kind of shackled with the concept of, okay, well, you're also going to be the god of alcohol, you know, which probably isn't a bad gig if you're a god. You know, I, I don't mm -hmm. I don't think I would mind having that job as a god. Well, you're a god, but you're also the god of alcohol. Sweet. Let's party. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, then you had uh, Aegor, which I can't pronounce. A-E-G-I-R. He was the Norse mythology one. Now, he was the big one that... Like, you know, in the halls of Valhalla, you know, he's he's the guy that's got the big, huge goblet of beer or mead or whatever the hell it is. And then there's the Mexican, which I'm not even going to try to pronounce because it looks like something that H.P. Lovecraft would write with like nine million consonants and syllables and words and letters and lots of Z's and C's. And, uh, you know, that's yeah, there's there's all the beers and kettle. Yeah. <laughs> the, beers and kettle kettle. Yeah. Pretty, <laughs> yeah. You know, you know wait here. You know what? Let me see. Uh. Let me find it on the internet here and see if I can find it and I'll put it in the chat window. You know, I'm not even going to bother that. T-I-E-Z-C-A-T-Z-O-N-T-E-C-A-T-I, which is basically, let's call it Tecate because that's the big Mexican beer. Dasequis. Uh, we'll yeah, call yeah. it the god Dasequis. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, so this is something that's been done like in every culture. Every uh, culture has, except for Christianity, which oddly enough, as far as Christianity is concerned, the monks and the monasteries, if it wasn't women brewing beer, monks and monasteries were the ones that were brewing beer as well. And it's at some point or another, again, I believe during the Inquisition, it went from being every back back in those days. A lot of people, when they drank the stuff, it wasn't, again, not to get high or to get drunk. Mm -hmm. A lot of it was for things like water purification. Mm. You know, the Greeks didn't they were really big on wine and stuff, but everybody drank wine from an early age because the water was foul. And when you made when you brewed with it and when you made wine with it, it was a way of purifying the water. The alcohol helped to kill off the bacteria and stuff in it. So that means uh, Jesus's miracle of uh, water to wine may not have been that big of a <laughs> deal. Yeah, well, it, it was a common thing back then. Everybody, people didn't really drink water a whole lot because it just wasn't safe. You had dysentery and 
all of these things. So it was like, well, wine was just something that everybody drank. And the alcohol, it's believed the alcohol would kill off, you know, was a disinfectant for whatever mm-hmm. you were drinking. And again, I believe there's something in the Bible, you being a biblical former guy in a past life, there was something in the Bible talking in there about also um, alcohol containing spirits as well. So. Yeah, there's uh, wine is a mocker. And uh, there's some scriptures in in theological circles. Uh, of course, your Lutherans and Methodists were much more open to having wine or beer with dinner because Luther was a monk and uh, loved beer very much. But with the more uh, conservative, more legalistic uh, denominations, they will point to scriptures uh, that kind of uh, are. Are you against. talking about Acts two thirteen? <laughs> no. What is that? The what first Pentecost bystanders mistook the effects of the Holy Spirit's and the disciples of his intoxication from too much wine, uh, from too much new wine. Mm. And that was in yeah, Acts two thirteen. Apparently, there is some like it's always been contested. You know, of course, Noah got drunk and ended up with his uh, his two sons. Uh, in the room with him naked and having to cover him up. And of course, that was a big biblical lesson growing up in Sunday school. Uh, you know, you don't want to drink. My God, let's not cause any circumstances like that to happen. But then, of course, uh, it was there in Christianity, too. Some accepted, some didn't, because there is Jesus making uh, the wine at the wedding. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's kind of either or, depending on your your denominational background. Do you know that the legend of the honeymoon, where that comes from? No. That comes from Mead. Well, reportedly, that's one of the legends for the honeymoon. The idea was that Mead was part of a wedding ceremony. So when you got married, everybody would give you gifts of Mead. They would give you enough Mead to make it from the time you got married to the first full moon. And the idea was ah. is that it enhanced fertility and enhanced love. Actually, what it was is you were you were getting bombed off your ass every night drinking yeah. Mead. And, of course, you know, you're, you're, you're newlyweds, so what are you going to do? Yes. That's and what happens to that? Uh, you get pregnant. So, <laughs> but that's the idea of what the honeymoon is. That's that's the time after you got married, you would just go hang out at your house until the first full moon, and you would have like a month or whatever to just be amongst yourselves. So they would be like, "Here, here's four bottles of mead. Here's two bottles of mead. Here's this mead that I made." And you would just drink mead continuously and stay drunk off your ass until the first full moon. That sounds that's like a good the time. Whole thing of where the honeymoon supposedly came from. Wow. So that's why it's called honey. Mm-hmm. Mm. That is so cool. Yeah, that's have I have I overblown you with knowledge? <laughs> no, I think that's uh, awesome. Yeah, I've been rattling think, on for a while now. <laughs> I think we're excited about uh, getting started this uh, with this in uh, ourselves because I, we I have think you some... guys are going to be fine with it. Uh, of anybody that I know, you more than anybody I know, you two are going to be great with it. It's just a uh, matter of getting you the equipment. And the yeah, same Kel- thing that I tell everybody else: if you need something, bug me as much as you need to. Um, you're going to ask probably where they're going to sound like a lot of stupid questions when you first get started. I, mm-hmm. you're not my, you, you're not going to be my first students. I'll put it that way. Like I said, um, we are at ground zero. So yeah, you're not going to be the first people I've had like that. I still have, you know, there, there's still a lot of people that I work with. They'll, they'll bug me here and there all the time with questions and stuff. And I'll be like, well, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. But the thing is, is it is a very, it's a very addictive hobby because once you figure it out and once you start doing stuff and once you get into it, I, see, you're different, though. You're going to be like, I need to make dandelion wine. You're not going to be like, I need to make an Indian pale ale. You're going to be like, right, I, can, right. can I brew with this? You know, and you're going to be yeah. like, you know, 
Can I can I brew with marijuana? Well, no, but people are. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, I'm much more interested as a sort of magical person in the ingredients that are going in. See, that's why uh, I think you guys are going to be it's going to be different for you because you're going to be you're going to look at it much the same way I do. It's what can I take this and make this with? What can I do with that? How can I what can I do next? You know, whereas with you guys, you're very herbal. You know, you guys are very much into like going out into the woods and finding plants that you can eat and things like that, which is all really cool stuff. That's, you know, I noticed you perked up when I said dandelion wine. Dan- dandelion mm-hmm. wine's been around for a very long time. I believe you can eat certain parts of the dandelion as well. So, you know, people, my, my great grandfather used to make dandelion wine. And my grandmother used to tell me about how she would sneak into her dad's her dad's collection. She got really, really drunk one time, and her parents come called wow. came and fought her, uh, found her drinking. And you know, she was hung over, and she's like, "That's the first time I was ever hung over drinking my dad's dandelion wine." Wow, um, we're yeah. definitely going to look into that because Kelly had this big dandelion experience. But we we've been using dandelion root and also the dandelion leaf, which you make uh, teas out of. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're big into making teas out of mushrooms and too. So we've got lots of stuff that like, Hmm, there's a lot of people. Yeah, dandelions, uh, dandelions actually have a lot of medicinal purposes. Like they're really good for upset stomach, gallstones, joint pain, muscle aches. I can go on and on. I mean, yeah. we're learning all these things now about these different plants that what we would call weeds are not mm-hmm. weeds. They're medicinally purposeful. Yeah. So dandelions are huge. Now, I did notice that you said dandelion experience, and then you glossed over that. I'm not going to let you do that. What do you mean by you had a dandelion experience? Did you get high off of dandelions, or did you have strange Kelly. dreams? Or that was, that was Kelly's experience, so I go ahead. Yeah, I actually had a dream that I walked out into the backyard. We did a whole episode on it, but I walked out into the backyard in my dream, and I saw our one of the sheds back there, and there was a light on, and the light was just illuminating a huge dandelion in the middle of the driveway. And uh, so I woke up in the morning, and I, of course, told Aaron about it, and he knew at that time that that meant for him that he needed to initiate into the sphere of Jupiter. And so he prepared, he started to prepare. And ironically, about an hour after he started to prepare and I had woken up, I then lost my job that day. So um, it's just like a whole big thing that happened with the dandelions magically that have led us down a different path And so when you talk about dandelions for us, that's something that's very dear to our heart because with the whole Jupiter initiation, that actually led me to another job better than I've ever imagined. Um, I mean, the job that I just started is phenomenal. And I'm so grateful that he took that dream that I had, which is usually what happens, Ro. I mean, you know how we are. I have a vision. I have a dream. He picks up on it. He initiates into something. And then it works both of our lives favor. And we just follow these synchronicities. So dandelions are very dear to us. I w- this is where I turn into an ass and I go, I was expecting like Little Shop of Horrors where the dandelion's talking to you, telling you to feed it or something. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> <laughs> feed me, Kelly. <laughs> we're, we're kind of like with the, well, we were just listening to a show on ayahuasca talking about the shamans brewing it. And they're mm-hmm. saying, if you don't prepare in such a way to take the ayahuasca, then the plants put into the ayahuasca, the spirit or what they call the mother of it, which is another kind of, interesting term the spirit of the plant won't speak to you so that's kind of like we're becoming slowly these weird animist type people who uh kind of 
seek out these experiences with plants. And I'm totally just going to say it that uh, that's why I'm so interested because there seems to be, uh, you know, there's some science stuff that's been done on some podcast about the possible intelligence of plants. So that's what makes it so interesting to me. Yeah, but it makes being a vegetarian so much harder. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you don't want to, you don't want to be sitting there eating your broccoli wondering, you know, you know, is it pondering the universe as you're eating it? I guess. You know, at that point, what can I eat? I can't eat animals. Now I can't eat my (laughs) plants because my plants might be as smart as me. You know, (laughs) there was a study done recently that plants actually know when they're being eaten too. That's the other thing. Yeah, we're learning that about mushrooms as well, how mushrooms are growing underground and communicating, helping the trees to communicate. I mean, it doesn't sound, it sounds a little frou-frou, but I mean, these are scientific studies that are coming out relating how nature is all connected and how all of these are coming together. And I mean, there's been dreams that I think we went for probably about two months where I was having all sorts of dreams about mushrooms. I was a mushroom in one of my dreams and somebody picked me and the fear I felt was horrendous. I mean, like we've had so many connections with nature just recently that it's it's kind of it's almost goofy. My daughter really says I'm turning into a hippie, but I really feel like you know, these connections that we're making are so important to nature. And I know what you're talking about with being a vegetarian. It's like I look at my broccoli and it has a face now, but you know, <laughs> it really doesn't. I mean, we have to be able to eat and we have to be able to forage, but we're we're definitely just more cautious on what we're foraging and what we're eating. Have you um when you had these dreams, did you by chance keep any idea of what, what you were eating when you before you went to bed that night or what your diet was like before you were before you had these dreams because i used to we, um i used to do a lot of dream experimentation with different foods and things like that and i found that the most intense craziest dreams that i ever had were pizza dreams for for lack of mm. a better term yeah well you know joshua cutchen's book uh the first one a trojan feast yes he's he starts talking about the ayurvedic diet which is vegetarian and how that may possibly open up some of the yogis uh, powers or psychic abilities. That's exactly what we have both been on for what, probably about seven, eight months now, Kelly. Right. Since October. Yeah. I love you guys. I do. I love you both to death. You're, you're some of the coolest people I've ever met, but you do some fruit loopy stuff every once in a while. (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. (laughs) We, We actually got on that diet for health reasons. Uh, you don't mind talking about Kelly had a heart attack Oh yeah, and there was actually insurance paid for her to go on this program in which this plant-based diet Mm -hmm. was part of it. So health wise insurance companies are like, yeah, there's enough science to back this up. So that's what started it. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, I'm just saying you guys check out Josh's book and see his argument for the, uh, well, he's not arguing for it. He's bringing up the possibility. The information is just there about the Ayurvedic diet, which is plant-based, and uh, this weird stuff that goes on. Well, even from a science standpoint, that's not that hard to believe because it changes your body chemistry. We are very oh, much yeah. products of what we eat. Our gut bacteria affects how, and this there's this isn't this is science that's been proven more so within the last two years that. Um, what you eat very much affects how you behave and a lot of it has to do with the bacteria that's in your gut so when you switch over to a vegetarian diet your 
everything that your body needs to digest changes. So if you guys were to go back and actually eat meat right now, it would probably, you'd probably feel like dirt because your body right. isn't, you could do it, but your body isn't as equipped biologically to help you digest that. Eventually exactly. I'm going to be there myself. I don't know. I couldn't, I don't think I could be ever become vegan, but I, being vegetarian, I would have a hard time giving up my cheeses and, and my eggs and things like that. Meat, I could probably give up. Because we've reached mm -hmm. a point now where there's a lot of meat substitutes that are really good. Like the Beyond Burgers, if you guys have ever had those. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, my God, That's they're my amazing. favorite, Ro. And they, I mean, they taste like really good meat. <laughs> they really do. I think they taste better than, than burgers that you could buy. But they're freaking expensive. Like, it's they like, are, but they're worth it, I think. It's like uh, like the the, the, ve the vegetarian crumbles and stuff like that. Like if I ever came down to your place, I'd make you guys a, a wicked lasagna, I'm sure. And I could probably do it vegetarian without a problem. Vegan's a awesome. way harder for me to do. I don't I don't know if I could do vegan. Like I don't even I love tofu. I don't have a problem mm. with that. Uh, so just for health reasons, I'm sure at some point I'm gonna give up eating meat. I'm probably gonna become more more vegetarian based. But um Yeah. Well, let well, me let me I'm sorry, Aaron. No, go ahead. No, go I was going to say, Ro, like, you know. Um, well, I really send you, the, I send you this, recipes all the time online, though. So. I know. I love when you do that. <laughs> I do. I love when you do that. But I mean, to think about this diet, too, the direction that we moved in. Um, Aaron had talked about something like that before I had gotten sick. But it was that, that heart attack and that fear, which is really what drove us in this direction. And Aaron jumped on the bandwagon to support me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's it's. For him, I, I'm so thankful, you know, that he did that for me. Even to this day, he still eats the same way I do just to support me mm -hmm. and, you know, has realized the benefits from it. But yeah, that's the way it's got to be when you're in a relationship, though. So, yeah, true. you know, like we support each other. Yeah, it's it's because it's, it's a lifestyle like me and my wife. We try to do low carb all the time. Lately, I've cut back and she's trying to and it's just not working because the stuff is in the house or whatever. Like we, we try to go low carb as much as possible. But unless you're both doing it, it's just not going to work. So, yeah. you know, it's just yeah. it's just how it is. Yeah. If it if it's if it's something you're trying to get away from and it's laying around, uh, it's just not going to happen for yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I guess my the point that I was trying to make, Ro, is you were talking about like, well, maybe one day I'll be able to transition. You know, if if I didn't have a heart attack, I probably would not have transitioned. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So it's like I had that extra motivator. But in the course of, of it, I've learned so much and I've learned more. And I would never look down on anyone who wants to eat meat or anything like Like, I'm not a radical crazy, oh, the poor cows. It's not anything like that. Fortunately, more vegans are, are getting away. That, that was my big problem. Like, my, my youngest daughter was like, yeah, I'm, I'm vegan. She was like, I'm vegetarian. I'm like, you're not vegan, are you? And she's like, no. Well, she eventually did become vegan. And that was like, oh, no. Because vegans, for the longest time, they tend to be very militaristic and very judgmental and blah, blah, blah. It's like. Do what you're going to do, but don't go shoving it down somebody's throat. You know, exactly. it's, it's, uh, yeah. well, yeah. you know, I'm more inclined to listen to somebody that says, yeah, I'm vegan and here, try this. You know, you don't like it. Okay. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's the people that are like, you shouldn't be eating that. You shouldn't be wearing those shoes, blah, 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 blah. And I don't want to be preached to, you know, I just, I just want to eat my five guys. <laughs> now, now, Terrence McKenna, you were joking earlier, but people would kind of get on him about being one of these almost like a new age guru. And he wasn't a vegetarian. He had been at a certain point, but he said, no, I'm not going to eat, eat plants. Some of um, these plants are my best friends. You know, I'm going to eat uh, meat. So you were joking, but yeah, that was actually uh, mm -hmm. something he said publicly, sort of joking too, but it was funny. 
So no, I would never get all dogmatic and be like, you're a terrible per- person for, you know, having a, a chicken sandwich or anything like that or a beer. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I've got very, very Christian in-laws. Um, they don't know that I do any of this. They don't know about it because for, for a while, I think for about 15 years, I stopped brewing completely because I got married. I had kids and it, it's just not something I wanted to have around the house. Now that my kids are older, I've re-embraced it. Um, I'd mm. say about maybe five years ago, I got back into it much the same way that my buddy got me into it. I was talking to somebody. I'm like, yeah, I make mead. What's that? And then the whole process started all over again. I'd say within the last year, I'm, I'm doing more brewing now than I've ever done in my life ever. And it's a, it's a mutual thing with the people on the internet and stuff like that. You know, me pushing them, them pushing me. It's, it's, I've kind of like, we've developed our own little community of friends doing this stuff. But, um, you know, I, again, I did, I did it because, I, I, the process of doing it and creating and this is something that I made and this is something that I did you know that, that's that's why I got into it and you guys are going to go to it like a duck to water though it's it's going to be it's, it's it's a very addictive hobby it's like you're always going to be checking and learning and trying to figure out something different and do something mm-hmm. new and all that kind of stuff so you know you're, you're going to have a lot of fun with it anybody else out there that's listening right now if you're thinking about doing this do not go and buy the Mr. Beer kit that you see at Christmas time where it's got like the little plastic looking sideways keg or whatever. I mean, if you want to do it, yeah, but that's <laughs> not it's not going to taste good. And most people, when they get into that kind of stuff, they'll get into it. They'll make they'll make the one batch. and They'll never touch it. Um, I do buy those when I see them at garage sales. If they're a couple of bucks, I'll pick them up because like the ingredients inside of them, I can use it. To, the ingredients and the stuff that it comes with, I, I always find a need for. You know, I always use mm. the ingredients to, for in other brewers and stuff like that. If you're going to do it, go to like uh, a real beer store or go watch some videos on YouTube. If you're interested in making mead, uh, there's lots of videos on YouTube on how to do it. Again, every one of them is going to tell you something different. Every, there's no one correct way to do everything. Um, mm. Don't let it overwhelm you. Uh, the big thing is to make sure everything's sanitized and, you know, just jump into it and go and have fun with it and don't be afraid to do it. It's it's neat. Um, but don't go buy, don't go buy the make beer, impress your friends. You know, don't go buy one of those little yeah. kits. Get get the real stuff or get as you know normal of stuff as you can. So, Well, man, we appreciate you uh, talking to us about this and I think uh, inspiring both uh, Kelly and I to jump into it. So we're going to make some decisions about what to start with, what juicy juice, get some honey and give it a go. Just and we'll get back with you. Start with honey and water and go from there. Cause that's the easiest thing. And it's simple as to, you can simple get Simple as you can get. And then, you know, go from there. And when you need me, I'm here, but I will say one thing. Did you know that there is a patron saint of brewing? No, there is a patron saint of beer. It is Hildegard von Bingen. Bingen. <laughs> and she was a Benedictine nun, herbalist, and mystic considered a patron saint of beer. Uh, to this day, she is still looked at as the patron saint of beer. So it can't be all that bad if there is a patron saint of beer. Which uh, That is awesome. Then you had St. Hubbard, which was the patron saint of footwear, according to Spinal Tap. But anyways... Um, she was the one who introduced hops to brewing. She was actually the person that when they were making beers and they were like, stop, you know, we're going to use pine cone needles and we're going to try all this kind of stuff. She was the one that came along and said, no, we're going to use these hops because hops are actually a sedative. And if you can't get to sleep and you do get into brewing mm-hmm. and if you buy some hops and you make a hop tea and you drink that, it'll actually put you to sleep because hops are a that sedative awesome. as well. Yes. I guess that's, she was, uh, you know, females are Again, known yes. for having this herbal knowledge and plant knowledge. So 
Uh, yeah, I would recommend you guys get into this and experiment. You might have the uh, next hops on your hands and not know it. The well, next great thing in beer. There are people experimenting again, uh, which I'm going to touch on later. I'll say this before we let you, before we go. A few years ago, there was a big. That was one of the strategies of the big beer companies was to try to get rid of these brewers. They were going out and buying up all of the hops that were available, preventing home mm-hmm. brewers and microbrewers from being able to go out and make beer. So again, it's it's kind of it's gone back now because like with you guys, I have a feeling what you might do is you can grow your own hops. You can go to like different markets and buy or you can even order hop seeds off the internet and you can grow your own. I have a few buddies that do it now and I'm never I never need hops. I just call one of my buddies up and they'll give me a bag of hops so I can I've got my That's own stuff awesome. I can brew. So you guys I'm probably pretty sure I'll probably be doing that at some point as well. But for a while, the big brew companies were coming along and buying every Every strand and strain of good hops that would come along that people could put out there, they were buying on all the suppliers, so people couldn't get it. So you had a situation where brewers were experimenting with different things and trying different um, different things that were out there. They were trying different teas. They were trying different coffees. That's how coffee stouts came about. They were like, well, we don't have hops, so we need to flavor this beer somehow, so let's try coffee. And it worked, and people liked it. So now you have coffee stouts. Um, so people were experimenting, and people now are experimenting again. They're going back, and they're trying all these different mm-hmm. things, uh, trying different weeds and things like that to try to get different flavors and variations of beers. And also because there's so many people that are brewing now, people are looking for yeah. some kind of a different edge or something different than what's already out there as opposed to making yet another brown ale. It's like, well, try this, so let's try that. Let's try something here. So you're seeing a lot more of that happening again. It's the guys like you that are the herbalists or that are trying to get into this stuff that are beginning to push these boundaries again and push things forward. <clears throat> that is, that is, it's really exciting because of all, not only the creativity of the individual brewer, but also the emerging sort of communal movement of the home brewer. So it's, it's, oh yeah, all, it's a big community. Around. It's a very big community and everybody in it, even though they have different ways of doing things, it's not like, like in the motorcycle community, if you go onto a forum and you say, hey, what kind of motor oil should I put into this motorcycle? Well, put this, this, and this, and blah, blah, blah. You know, you might get 10 answers, but everybody will start fighting with each other very quickly. Whereas in the brew community, nobody really jumps on each other's case for, well, you shouldn't be using that hops, or you shouldn't be using this malt, or you shouldn't be using that kind of yeast. It comes down to whatever works for you and whatever tastes good. As long as it comes out and it works and it tastes the way you want it to taste, hey, man, have at it. You know, there's no yeah. wrong way to make a spaghetti sauce, you know, <laughs> it's, no, so a, it's a really proof, cool community. The proof is uh, in its uh, bottle. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Well, Rogan, thanks so much for uh, talking with us. And uh, let's do this again soon. Yeah, absolutely, man. No problem at all. Thank you very much. All right, man. Take care. Want to get in contact with the show or listen to back episodes? It's easy. Go to www.projectarchivist.com. On the right side of the page, you'll find links to our archives, as well as links on how to get onto our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. If you want to leave a voicemail for us, it's 734-681-0459. Yes, we do listen to all of them. Or if you want to talk to Lobo directly, you can call 203-212-9975. Yes, that will in fact put you in touch with his cell phone. If he's available, he will take your call and talk to you. If you're just looking to send us an email, you can do that at projectarchivist at gmail.com. Don't forget to look for us on iTunes under the podcast section, or you can stream us right to your phone with the Stitcher Android app for free. Hi, this is Melissa from Drawing Out the Spirits podcast. Every Wednesday, we interview a guest on their topic of strangeness 
while my co-host John Chadwick illustrates a scene from the conversation. You can find us at www.espirit.tv or on Facebook at Drawing Out the Spirit. And that will do it for this episode. Big thank you to Aaron and Kelly for allowing me to share this interview, discussion, whatever the hell this was, uh, in our feed. Hopefully you guys found it entertaining and enlightening. And as I said in the show, if anybody is interested in doing this, you can shoot me an email over at projectarchivist at gmail.com. Find me on Facebook, and you can also find me in the Project Archivist Facebook page. And, uh, you know, just say, hey, I'm interested in doing this and I will get back in touch with you. I will show you where you can go and get most of the ingredients for this stuff, or all of the ingredients, I should say, and I can send you to a wealth of information and resources on the internet to get you started. It's a lot of fun. It's very addictive, not in the sense that you could become an alcoholic, but the fact that you can just try all of these different things and see where this takes you and make some really cool stuff. Um, Having said that, next week Lobo will be back, and if all goes well, we will have an additional guest for a show that we like to do every year around this time. It's one of the fan favorites, and fingers crossed, if the stars align, everything goes well, we're going to try to pull that show off. And I'm going to leave it at that and be vague about it because I don't want to jinx anything. But um, yeah, we're going to call it good. That's going to be it. Uh, This is Rojan. Peace out from Detroit. Detroit.